Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Unfiltered. We start with the latest breaking news out of Louisiana, where Barry made landfall this afternoon as a hurricane before being swiftly downgraded to a tropical storm. More than 100,000 residents are currently without power. Our Randy Kay is on the ground in Baton Rouge. Randy, what's the latest? Well, Essie, uh, the latest is that uh, it's getting really windy here. Uh, we're on the banks of the Mississippi River. Uh, 15,000 people here uh, without power, so the situation uh, isn't great. But if you take a look here at the river behind me, you can see it's uh, it's definitely churning a bit. We've seen some smaller uh, white caps. The, the trees are uh, starting to look like they're getting in there just a little bit deeper. Um, this is a pretty high river already. And just back in 2016, they got real concerned because the, there was a, uh, a major storm, a big depression that came through here and dumped about a, a foot and a half of rain into the river and onto this area. And people are still recovering from that. So that's the greatest concern right now. There's two shelters that are open here in the Baton Rouge area where people can bring their pets. The National Guard is here, about 3,000 of them. Winds are gusting, as you can see, probably about 65 miles an hour right now at their at their worst gust. So it's definitely getting windy. The worst of the rain is expected to hit here later this evening and overnight. So that's why people are really bracing. Whoa, people are really bracing for that. And they're very concerned about the flooding. They're checking the, uh, the drainage pipes in the area. Uh, to make sure that the water has somewhere to go and it can drain so they don't have serious flooding here like they had back in 2016, Essie. Mm. Randy Kane, Baton Rouge, stay safe. Thanks for that reporting. Now to Washington, where the latest drama sounds more like a Saved by the Bell plotline or some other more contemporary reference that doesn't show my age than it does a war of words between actual adults in Congress. Overnight, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's chief of staff got lit up by the official House Democrats Twitter account for a now-deleted tweet accusing a fellow Democrat of enabling racism. Her chief of staff originally posted, I don't believe Sharice is a racist person, but her votes are showing her to enable a racist system. Well, the House Dems account last night replied by using the same language AOC used to attack Pelosi earlier this week. Who is this guy and why is he explicitly singling out a Native American woman of color? Her name is Congresswoman Davids, not Sharice. She's a phenomenal new member who flipped a red seat blue. Keep her name out of your mouth. Now, to be clear, this appears to be a fully sanctioned hit job. The account targeting AOC's chief of staff comes under the purview of Congressman Hakeem Jeffries, chairman of the House Democratic Caucus. And the salvo was retweeted by Speaker Pelosi's deputy chief of staff. Your tax dollars hard at work, folks. This follows Pelosi's comments last week to The New York Times saying of AOC and her squad, all these people have their public whatever and their Twitter world, but they didn't have any following. There are four people and that's how many votes they got. Ouch. Then the speaker told Democrats to stop attacking each other. So here's tonight's headline. 
I've seen this movie before. It ends tragically. Let me take you back to a quainter time. The year was 2009, and a growing American political movement called the Tea Party was catching hold. They were Republicans who were initially opposed to government spending and the surging deficit, righteous small government causes. It eventually morphed into Republican infighting over, well, everything, producing an ever-fringier, farther-right Republican party and pushing moderates out the door. Republican-on-Republican crime grew to enormous heights at this time, creating exactly the kind of environment for someone like Donald Trump to come along and exploit the weaknesses of a divided party. Even today, monuments to the Republican Civil War still stand. Republican Congressman Justin Amash, now too squishy for the Freedom Caucus that he helped found. Former Speaker of the House John Boehner, who served in the House for nearly a quarter century, now a cannabis pitchman. Former Speaker of the House Paul Ryan, once the policy wonk of Congress, now the target of President Trump's latest tantrum, which he continued throwing on Twitter minutes ago, but began on Friday. Paul Ryan was not a talent. He wasn't a leader. When the people in freedom and and great congressmen wanted to go after the Dems for things that they did very badly, he wouldn't give subpoenas. Paul Ryan let us down. Paul Ryan was a terrible speaker. Frankly, he was a baby. He didn't know what the hell he was doing. Here's the deal. Democrats, if you're not careful, this is your future. Republicans will exploit the fights between AOC's squad and Pelosi because they can, because it's easy. They'll watch giddily with popcorn and greet the cannibalizing with glee. But I'm not here to revel in this. I'm here like the ghost of politics past to warn you. Don't make the same mistakes we did. It was bad for our party, but also really bad for the country. When the loudest voices in the room also represent the fewest people... When majorities are overtaken and steered to the farthest fringes. When moderates are blotted out by extremists who talk righteously of shoving bold changes down the throats of all Americans. Beware, the end is nigh. The majority of Americans are not on the far right or the far left. And yet, look who the loudest voices on both sides are right now. Okay, joining me to discuss this is a moderate Democrat who flipped a Republican seat last year. New York Congressman Max Rose. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed the Save by the Bell reference <laughs> as you, well. That was you good. might be of a certain age. That um, was good. Okay, you had your own run-in with this kind of Democrat on Democrat mm-hmm. crime. Progressive Congressman Mark Pocan mm-hmm. accused moderates like you of supporting child abuse mm, yeah. because of your border votes. Were you surprised at how that escalated? Well, first, let, let's take a step back. Right? Yeah. I, you know, I'm a, the local guy, right? So I, I'm about a half an hour away in Staten Island yeah. and South Brooklyn. I spent the entire day talking to residents of my congressional district. Not one person mentioned this Twitter drama. Yeah. No one cares. And beyond that, nobody even has Twitter. No one tweets, no one's on Facebook. (laughs) So it's important for us to realize that this is not where the American people are right now. They're actually concerned about real life, real world issues. Exactly. So so of course I should tell AOC and Pelosi that to stop this stupid fight over uh, over egos. A little bit of back and forth, a little bit of divisiveness. This is okay. We shouldn't be too sensitive, all right? And, And let's keep in mind as well that the alternative can be what we see in the Republican Party right now, a homogenous, unified party, but unified only in the name, only in the name, may I add, of giving tax cuts 
to billionaires. So oh, I, the, think, I think there are parties now just unified in whatever Trump wants. Well, that's actually far more high-minded than I, I, I give actually, them credit for right let, now. Let's, let's not forget people are not paying attention. So they only see what government actually produces. And the only thing that this Republican Party has actually ever accomplished are tax cuts for the wealthiest amongst us. Now, what we have got to do, because your analysis as a whole is actually correct. Uh, we, have got to, we, we, we have to worry not about a Twitter feud, Twitter drama. Yeah. The American people don't give a damn. I don't give a damn. Yeah. But I do care when we become less effective as a government. We should be yes, capable of bipartisanship kind of and by cameral action. But don't you think this kind of stuff gets in the way of some of this agenda? I mean, when you've got two you know, squads, two camps fighting mm-hmm. over bruised egos and who called whom a racist... How are they coming together to get stuff done? It certainly can get in the way. Mm. And we're always teetering on this. These are some of the dangers of being a big tent party, what the Republican Party once was aiming to be. So we're teetering on it. We should be very cognizant of this, very worried about it. I'm worried about it, not just as an elected official. I'm worried about it as I represent a district where kids are dying from overdoses, Mm. where people have hours-long commutes, where we're worried about, you know, uh, falling public housing and cops and firemen who can't get paid. But there was a bright light this week. We passed the Victims' Compensation Fund. The Senate is going to pass it, I believe. The president is going to sign it, and we're going to send a message to the American people. Government can work. It can be bipartisan. It can be bicameral. It can be effective. It does seem like, in addition to maybe a chasm between some of the, 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 the camps, it seems like there's a chasm between the Democratic Party and most voters. Only 32% of voters agree with decriminalizing the border. Only 13% support abolishing private health insurance. Both of those Mm -hmm. two issues loom large, at least on the presidential Mm. debate stage, Um, you know, if not in Congress. But but that's not where the country is. Do you worry that the party is not really in touch with where most voters are? I I don't personally worry right now because I'm going to win re-election irrespective of what any Democratic presidential candidate says or what anyone else says. Because No, 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 no. Just for, for a moment, though. These folks right now, some folks who are running for president, are certainly only thinking about a Democratic primary base. Yeah. Other people are undoubtedly considering the larger picture. Other people might believe what they say. Some might not. It's an 18-month period. Right. The evil, though, with this situation is that you and I are talking about a presidential election that is a year and a half away, and we never stop to consider how destructive just that conversation can be. Right now, we live in a moment of a perpetual campaign. The American people are so utterly tired of it. They want to see us actually get to work. And what our challenge is... I'm not stopping you from getting to work, No, of course. The campaign and the election are hugely important, and Mm -hmm. they are running. Are we not meant to cover their campaigns? No, you should cover them. And ask serious questions about health care and immigration issues that Democrats and voters care about. But what I am trying to do, and what I want our focus to be on as a party, is not a presidential primary. I don't care. I want to see us put an infrastructure bill forward. I want to see us do something about the opioid epidemic. I want to see us do something about health care costs. We live in a very fascinating moment in our nation's history, and that is that I believe the American people are actually united in an unprecedented way. Republicans in 2016, Donald Trump at the forefront, ran on a Democratic populist agenda. Protect Medicare, protect Social Security, drain the swamp, Mm -hmm. make our roads and bridges great again. 
2018, we ran on very similar points of agenda. Right. We won back the House. That is what we should be doing. And we've passed some signature pieces of legislation. We have to continue doing it. Congressman Max Rose, thanks for having this conversation. I really appreciate it. I appreciate you. Thank you so much. Okay, progressives don't seem to have learned some of the lessons of 2018 and threatening to primary moderates is proof. I'll have that next and a little later. Is there still time for a 2020 breakout moment? My candidate of the week is hoping for another one. I'll explain. More signs of trouble for Democrats. This week, a pair of members of the Congressional Black Caucus zeroed in on Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. First, Congressman William Lacey Clay said this about AOC's attack on Pelosi. Because you can't get your way and because you're getting pushback, you resort to using the race card? Unbelievable. That's unbelievable to me. I agree with the speaker. Four people, four votes out of 240 people. Who cares? Now, Congressman Gregory Meeks also called Ocasio-Cortez's remarks intolerable. And when asked about members of the CBC being targeted by AOC and Justice Democrats for primary challenges, he implied a primary challenge isn't out of the question for her, saying primaries go two ways. If someone picks a fight with somebody else, you fight back. That's what my parents told me. But listen, this isn't just a House concern on the national stage. Most of the 2020 candidates are swinging far to the left. Will all this outlefting result in a big Republican win in November 2020? That's the question. Joining me now are Washington Post assistant editor David Swerdlick and Republican strategist Michael Singleton. David, I want your take on the race element sure. of this fight with AOC. William Lacey Clay, I don't do it justice reading it because sure. you had to watch him. He was visibly right. outraged that Ocasio-Cortez went after Pelosi on race. Now, AOC has since sort of backtracked saying... Yeah. Pelosi's not racist. She was just pointing out a pattern. Um, will this backfire on her? Uh, potentially. But look, let's okay. get one easy thing out of the way. Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez does not think that Speaker Pelosi is a racist. Yeah. And Speaker Pelosi is not a racist. Yeah. In my view, this is about respect. Mm. The Speaker is looking at the freshmen, the young guns or the, the squad, whatever right. they're called. And she's saying, I have raised almost three quarters of a billion dollars for Democrats since I've been in leadership. I'm in charge. I held us together through Iraq, through Bush, through Trump, yeah. through the Affordable Care Act. Don't question my authority, mm. okay? Mm. On the other hand, uh, Ocasio-Cortez, Taleb, Presley, uh, Omar, they're saying we are the energy in the party. Right. We are the future of the party. Respect us, too. Why didn't you fight mm. when we wanted to have a fight with Republicans in the Senate? So, mm. I, And it has become, to answer your question, yeah. a racial thing. But Democrats, free advice Democrats, it would be wise to reel this in and get it back behind closed doors. I agree. Doors. Uh, Schmeichel, Republicans are already obviously yep. exploiting this divide. But to what advantage? I mean, to, to my last guest point, do voters care that these I, guys are calling each other names? I think they care to this extent. Okay. 21. That's the number that viewers should remember. 21. Because that's how many seats Republicans have to win back to regain control of the majority. Democrats last year won 64 House seats. Of the 64, 43, 44 of them were previously held by Republicans. Right. It was the moderates that gave them their majority, right. not the AOC types. And so I think for Republicans, they're going to go to those districts and they're 
they're going to say, look, you elected these Democrats to be a check on the executive. They said they were going to bring back some normalcy to Congress. And here's examples of infighting. They're going to say Democrats want open borders. They want to decriminalize unauthorized immigration. They're going to say Democrats want to take away your private health insurance. There is a legitimate argument that can be made to voters in those sort of purple districts Mm -hmm. that I think Republicans are going to jump on. Well, David, uh, to this point. Sure. Democrats were, uh, you know, gained back the House because of moderate wins. They've got Pelosi. They've got the CBC. um, And then those 43 seats, the Democrats flipped in 2018 with moderate candidates. Um, Why isn't the more moderate wing of the parties dominating the conversation, dominating the narratives, dominating on policy, dominating on all of it? Well, I think there's a couple things. First of all, I think you had a moderate Democratic presidency in the Obama presidency, and now the young guns, the new energy in the party is saying, okay, fine, but we want more. We don't want more of the same. Whether that's a good strategy for the yeah. 2020 presidential may be the wrong thing. And to, I agree with Sir Michael. It's mm-hmm. the moderate House seats that are going to change control of the House or keep control of the House mm-hmm. for Speaker Pelosi. But that being said, yeah. I think, again, just to play devil's advocate, sure. in, in my own view, Uh, Medicare for all is too far left. Uh, The Affordable Care Act was too far left. But guess what? Democrats are saying that the the far left Democrats are saying we did the Affordable Care Act, which was Romney Care light. Uh And what did we get for it? Nothing but agita from Republicans. We didn't get one Republican vote. So why not go for more? I remember the anti-Bush backlash from Mm -hmm. the far right. He was a moderate. He was a squish. And it just it goes to a place that ends up being corrosive. But, but Essie, if I can, I, yeah. I don't buy that. I mean, if, if you look at the Pew Research Center, they had some studies that came out, I believe, last year that focused on African-Americans and Hispanics. And of African-Americans and Hispanics who self-identified as Democrats, I believe 43 or 44 percent of African-Americans consider themselves to be moderate. 27 mm. percent consider themselves to be conservative. Mm. And only 26 percent consider themselves to be liberal. Yeah. These are two of the most important voting blocs right. within the Democratic Party. So this notion of far-left progressivism <laughs> just does not exist. Well, we're going to see it play out on, you know, in this presidential election. Mm -hmm. We're going to see whether this gambit works, this far left gambit works. You guys are great. Thank you so much for joining me. Got to have you guys both back. Uh, Okay, President Trump is making sure immigration stays a top campaign issue as mayors in nine U.S. cities prepare for the much talked and tweeted about ICE raids set to begin tomorrow. I'll speak to one of those mayors in a bit. It was the other big moment from the Democratic debates last month. Julian Castro schooling former Congressman Beto O'Rourke on immigration. The reason that they're separating these little children from their families is that they're using Section 1325 of that act, which criminalizes coming across the border, to incarcerate the the parents and then separate them. Some of us on this stage have called to end that section, to terminate it. Some, like Congressman O'Rourke, have not. And I want to challenge all of the candidates to do that. I think that you should do your homework on this issue. If you did your homework on this issue, you would know that we should repeal this That performance gave Castro's campaign a huge bump in fundraising, an increase of more than 3,000 percent. But what about it standing in the polls? Nothing. In fact, Castro actually lost a percentage point after the debate. His support in CNN's latest poll sits at a mere 1%. Meanwhile, the top performers, according to a new NBC Wall Street Journal poll, are still former Vice President Joe Biden, 
Senator Elizabeth Warren, Senator Kamala Harris, Senator Bernie Sanders, and Mayor Pete Buttigieg. So Castro remains a dark horse in this election, but I think he's got more up his sleeve. Julian Castro is my candidate of the week. He's not joining me, but with me now to discuss is Democratic strategist and CNN political commentator Maria Cardona. Even better. Okay, Maria, <laughs> I just don't, I don't get it. Why isn't Castro catching on? That debate performance was, I thought, really impressive. Yeah, it was very impressive. And I think that you saw the results of that with the fundraising. But then what happened the next night, Essie? It was kind of overshadowed by yeah. the other sort of right tit for tat in terms of Kamala Harris and Joe Biden. And because at that point, Kamala Harris and Joe Biden were sort of in the next tier above yeah. uh, Castro, they ended up getting all of the attention. They ended up mm -hmm. getting the majority of the media coverage from that second night of the debate. And Castro kind of, you know, yeah. receded to to the background now there is that was just the first debate we have to remember this right yeah. there are yeah, 11 to more debates to one. go yes he has to make the next one and he's already you know a lot of these candidates frankly are sending out uh sort of red alerts to all of their supporters because yeah. they know that in the next uh series of the of the debates in september and on they have to make two percent and they have to double the number of grassroots donors and so there is still time right and Detroit, I believe that um, they're, the standing is still the same. Castro will be on that debate stage, so there absolutely is time for him to have another breakout moment. Well, so we'll I see. Wanna go back. Let me, let, I want to go back to Castro in a second because I have more sure. questions about him. But are, sure. do you think we're looking at the five, Biden, Bernie, Warren, Harris, and Buttigieg? Do you think we're looking at, you know, the final five? That is so hard to say, SC. You know, if you had asked me that maybe five years ago where conventional wisdom was more conventional wisdom, uh, we don't know. We don't know what can happen. You and I know very well that you can't really predict things like that given the political environment that we're living in. I hope yeah. that Castro continues to be a force to be reckoned with. I think the more voices well, that we have on yeah. that Democratic stage and the more ideas that are put out there, the better it is for the party. Well, I'm especially baffled because, yeah. as you know, immigration is a top issue for Democrats. Castro yeah. is from Texas, a border state. Yeah. He was mayor of San Antonio, a city that has welcomed thousands of Central American asylum seekers that the Trump administration relocated there. Why isn't he dominating this conversation? Well, you know, it's interesting that you say that, Essie, because I'm about to say something that um, I may get a lot of hate mail for, oh. but I believe this could be the reason why he actually didn't break out from a polling standpoint after that night's debate. I don't agree with what he put out there. I don't think hmm. the majority of the Democratic Party agrees with what he put out there. In terms De of like decriminalizing the border yes. and stuff like that? Uh -huh. Yes. Yeah. Decriminalizing the border plays into Trump's hands. Decriminalizing the border gives Trump the talking point and makes it sound true that all Democrats are for open borders. Section 1325 of the Immigration Act is not what is giving Trump the power to separate women, hmm. to separate uh, children from their families. The way that you stop separating children from their families is by not separating children from their families. You mm. don't need to change the law to do that. It's called prosecutorial discretion. This was a Trump era policy, not based in law. So well, th so that's so interesting. You think that that Castro's position on immigration, which was was in evidence very strong, strongly mm -hmm. at, at mm -hmm. that debate, yeah. that's actually hurting him in a Democratic primary.
I think it is, because if you look at a lot of the columns from people who actually know immigration and people who are not like, you know, conservative Democrats, they actually talked about how this could help. I'm sorry, how, how Castro's position could hurt the party as a whole hmm. and, and about how what he is putting out there is not going to help the humanitarian piece of this. And, hmm. so, for, and, so, and so ironically, I think on that stage, the person who was correct on immigration but just didn't know how to fight back and how to fight for it was actually Beto O'Rourke, somebody so who lived on the border all of his life yeah. and saw how a working border actually works. But he was not able to articulate that to wow. his detriment. Um, and it just goes to show, and you know, by the way, Beto is actually polling higher than Julian Castro in our last poll, but just goes to show yeah. there's the theater of the debate, yes. right? And who wins the sort of the, the theatrical moment, but That's maybe exactly right. that the policy gets a little lost. Maria, That's thanks exactly so much. Right. Those are really great points. I'm glad <laughs> thanks, you came on. Thanks. Okay, and make sure you guys stick around for the Axe Files immediately following this show at 7 p.m. Um, because up next, I'll talk to, he's going to talk to uh, Mayor Pete Buttigieg. And up next, I will talk to the mayor of one U.S. city targeted by the administration's planned ICE deportation raids. He says this is pure presidential politics. In the red file tonight, the upcoming ICE raids scheduled to begin tomorrow in nine major cities around the country. Here's what Trump said on Friday. It starts on Sunday, and they're going to take people out, and they're going to bring them back to their countries, or they're going to take criminals out, put them in prison, or put them in prison in the countries they came from. We're focused on criminals as much as we can before we do anything else. While on a tour of detention facilities yesterday, Vice President Pence also said the raids will primarily focus on immigrants who committed crimes. He also confirmed that families could be separated. Will families be separated? People will be separated from this country who our courts have ordered to be deported. So families could be separated. But I want to be, I want to be clear on this, Pamela. The priority is going to be on individuals who've committed crimes in this country. Okay, let's be clear about something. I think our immigration system is broken, and I believe in strong borders. But this is not designed to solve a problem. It's designed to send a message a purely political one. That kids might be left parentless in the process makes it all the more disturbing. Now, how do we know it's just about politics? Well, for starters, Trump announced the raids, making them inherently ineffective and explicitly about fear and optics. Then there's the timing in the midst of an election in which he's got no real success to show in cracking down on illegal immigration, only failures, in fact. It's also, it should be noted, coming in the midst of a very bad news cycle. Robert Mueller is set to testify soon. Trump's labor secretary just resigned for his role in letting accused child predator Jeffrey Epstein pretty much walk in 2008. There's also the fact that for two years, Trump and Republicans had a majority in Washington and all the opportunity to pass reforms and got nothing done on immigration. So he can say he's just enforcing the law, and that's true, but it's still just a stunt meant to briefly appease his supporters. The truth is neither side has passed any meaningful immigration reforms for decades. But for Trump, at least, talking tough on immigration was enough to get him elected in 2016. Will it work in 2020? I don't know. I want to talk to someone who will be affected by these raids. He's the mayor of one of the cities 
where they will happen tomorrow. Welcome to Denver Mayor Michael Hancock. Um, first Mayor, we've talked to several other mayors who have said they don't know what to expect tomorrow, that they haven't been briefed by DHS or ICE or the White House. What do you know about who will be targeted in your city tomorrow? Another consistent response, SE. First of all, thanks for having me. Uh, we don't know. We don't know what to expect. We don't have any uh, uh, information in terms of what they're going to be doing on tomorrow. We, you know, sometimes when there are raids in our city, we may get a notice 10 minutes out just so we don't have a blue on blue incident. Uh, mm -hmm. But we don't know at this time. So, how are your residents reacting given the uncertainty and confusion and, and fear? Well, I mean, everyone is concerned, and I can tell you that uh, obviously our immigrants are very concerned. Um, they're fearful. Um, they are, you know, concerned about their well-being, the well-being of their children, well-being of their families. This is, I think you pointed it out very appropriately, this is a political stunt, and we have seen it time and time again by this president. Uh, whenever something's going on in terms of bad news uh, mm. uh, week, uh, month, he tends to pull the immigrants out and say, we're going to use them as a political pawn, and we tend to play the game with them. Media scurries over, follows yeah. the media story, the, the mayors are responding. Here we go again. Uh, and it's unfortunate because uh, it makes us all unsafe and it certainly disrupts the harmony within our communities. Um, what's your community preparing to do if these raids leave children who are U.S. Citizen, citizens without parents? Our jobs, SE, our Department of Human Services is more than prepared uh, mm -hmm. to step in and to make sure that the children are not left uh, alone. We'll try to do everything we can to connect them with uh, kindred uh, family uh, so they can be safe and secure. Um, but uh, when we're called upon, we're not really trying to assist ICE. Our focus is on the children and to make yeah. sure they have what they need. Um, uh, admittedly, municipalities like Denver, Atlanta, Chicago, LA, San Francisco, New York are limited in what we can do in terms of stopping these, uh, yeah. these uh, politically motivated raids that the president has pushed and has ordered by ordered ICE to do, but the reality is what we're going to do is what we do best, and that is to move in and help and assist the children uh, who are left yeah. uh, alone or separated from their parents as a result. Oh, it's just, it's too awful to think about, frankly. Um, but as Absolutely. I mentioned, um, Republicans, as you know, held a majority under this president for two years. They weren't able to, to pass immigration reform, but also Obama and Democrats held a majority for two years, passed no immigration reform. As an executive of a city, are you frustrated that Congress and multiple administrations have continually punted and politicked on this issue without solving it? S.E., nobody should be let off the hook here. This is an absolute uh, disappointment. Um, as, an, mm. um, as a country, um, as, as endowed as we are, as blessed as we have been, to have not come up with a strategy to address the issues yeah. of immigration uh, coming across our borders, it, it really is an embarrassment. So I have never mm. let uh, our, our, even my own party and elected officials from the Democratic Party off the hook. But yeah. it, you got to admit, it's this president who stands up and announces that he's going to do these raids with great yeah. pride and confidence that this is what is the right thing to do and doing it because he knows he's speaking to a base and hoping yeah. to do whatever he needs to do, I guess, to distract the media and the public. But the reality is, is that all of us who are elected officials, particularly those in Washington, have yeah. a responsibility to step up and do the right thing with regards to immigration. These are lives of individual human beings that are at stake, and they're asking for an opportunity to pursue the American dream without 
not worrying about who's the, who the boogeyman is and when they're going to come mm -hmm. in and to separate their families. Yes, Democrats in Congress need to be held accountable as well, but we certainly need to hold this president accountable for the hysteria and fear that he is spreading throughout this country needlessly, particularly with uh, families and children. Well said. Mayor Hancock, thanks for coming on, taking the time to speak with me tonight. Um, I guess good, good luck tomorrow. I hope, I hope it goes off without Thank too you. many terrible incidents. Thanks. All right, because of journalists, Jeffrey Epstein's victims may finally get some justice. Let's hope the media doesn't also leave them behind. More on that after the break. The latest twist in the stomach-churning Jeffrey Epstein case. Prosecutors are now alleging he wired $350,000 to two people close to him to try to buy the silence of possible witnesses against him. That while the Miami Herald was publishing the sordid details of that 2008 plea deal he reached with then-U.S. Attorney Alex Acosta. Well, Alex Acosta was until yesterday Trump's labor secretary, but he's out, resigning amid the backlash over that plea deal, which allowed Epstein an accused child predator to escape federal prosecution for sex trafficking. But in the days following his latest indictment, multiple victims have come out to courageously share their stories, and they are awful. They tell stories of forced sexual encounters for money, claims of rape of children as young as 14, allegations of a wide-reaching sex trafficking ring of recruiters and sex workers. The Miami Herald talked to no less than 80 alleged victims, which means there's likely even more. Epstein has pleaded not guilty. Unfortunately, though, these victims are getting overshadowed by the boldface names attached to Epstein, names like Trump and Clinton and Acosta, Hollywood celebs and well-connected millionaires. Political interest in this story is perhaps unavoidable, but let's not forget who the story is really about. With me now, Spencer Coven, who represented three accusers in the original case against Epstein in Florida more than a decade ago, including the 14-year-old who was the first one to report Epstein to police. Um, Spencer, take me back to 2008, if you would. This was long before Me Too. What were these victims up against when they first came out against Epstein? Thank you for having me on, S.E., and, and I agree with you. It's important to remember the victims in all of this and forget the named individuals. These young girls, and they were all very young, we're talking 14, 15, and 16 years old at the time, they were being pressured by Epstein's lawyers. They were being questioned under deposition um, very harshly about their past. Their family members were being interviewed. Their boyfriends were being asked about uh, these young girls and whether or not they had engaged in any sexual activities. They were being followed in Black Tahoes by security personnel that was hired by Mr. Epstein. And it was incredibly intimidating and, and very scary for these young women. Oh, I bet. I, I understand you've spoken with at least one of the accusers about the new charges. Um, what was her reaction? I have. Um, she was ecstatic to see Mr. Uh, Epstein finally put behind bars, but she was also skeptical. Uh, understand these young women went through a lot at the time, and, you know, there weren't a lot of people that were in their corner. 
Uh, I represented three of these young girls, and uh, they would uh, go home crying after uh, sworn testimony and wondering whether or not they did the right thing. Mm. And it just was not giving the right message. And, and now uh, that they see him behind bars, they're hopeful that the right thing will happen this time. But again, they're, they're skeptical because the people yeah. that were in power last time around really didn't do the right thing. So what do you make of these new reports that Epstein's been trying to buy the silence of some accusers? I'm not surprised. Uh, back at the time that this was occurring originally uh, with the first allegations in 2006 and 2007, we as the attorneys knew that he was paying for lawyers uh, that were defending his co-conspirators back then, Nadia Marcinkova and Sarah Kellen, Haley Robson. These are all young women that were obtaining other women to bring to his house, and he was paying for the lawyers to defend them in depositions. So I'm not surprised that they're actually finding the money trail now. So his bail hearing is set for Monday. Do you think Epstein will be able to successfully use the same tactics of power and intimidation that he did 10 years ago? Or do you think these victims might finally see some justice? I certainly hope not. Um, I'm hopeful. I think that the Southern District of New York is taking this a lot more seriously than Mr. Acosta's team did some 12, 13 years ago. And don't forget, we have to ask, you know, Mr. Acosta was not acting alone at that time. There right. were people that were working in D.C. that he was hired by, and, and there were people much higher than him that had to approve this deal. So you, as an investigative reporter and all of the other reporters out there, should be asking the people that were in power back then who made that decision back then, because that's really going to be the important part of this mm -hmm. investigation. Well, I hope it all comes out um, so that we can learn from this and, and so that these women who were then young girls can finally see some justice. Attorney Spencer Coven, um, who's represented Epstein victims, thanks so much for joining me tonight. Thank I'll you for right having back. me on. I appreciate sure. it, Essie. I'll be right back. A week ago, I took my four-year-old to see Toy Story 4, a big fan of the franchise. I found this one a little slow, but otherwise good family fun. But apparently I'm a terrible mother because we all missed a truly horrifying scene. A group called One Million Moms is in fact calling for a boycott of the film, calling one scene dangerous. What is it? Well, Bonnie, Woody's new child, is dropped off at kindergarten. And in the background, two women are shown dropping off another kid. And later, they pick her up and give her a hug. I know, can you believe it? I'm at a loss for words. The group says the scene is subtle in order to desensitize children, but it is obvious that the child has two mothers and they are parenting together. Now, I feel awful for unwittingly subjecting my child to such a terrifying cinematic moment. I don't know if he'll ever recover from the sight of two cartoon women dropping a cartoon child off at school and later showing that cartoon child parental affection by hugging it. How will I explain this unseemly sight to my four-year-old who was too busy watching the movie to notice this otherwise unterrifying background non-story? How will I ever break the awful news to him that sometimes kids are lucky enough to have two parents that love them? Gosh, between that tough lesson and telling him about death and Santa, I don't know which he'll take worse. I don't know how I missed it. I guess I'm too busy worried about how I'll keep my kids safe from opioids, peer pressure, cyberbullying, depression, and ticks to have noticed the real threat. Two moms in a cartoon movie. 
All right, that's it for me. But stick around. Mayor Pete Buttigieg joins David Axelrod to discuss next steps for his campaign, his struggle to resonate with minority voters, and much, much more. The Axe Files is next. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.